Saving money on your outdoor project? Now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Menards. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here. We are going to be having a great discussion today. I am excited to have two seasoned veterans in the world of, you can say, the intersection of science and God. And so this is going to be a great one, in particular, as mentioned, on whether or not biology points to God. And so we have two distinguished gentlemen here. Aaron Ra is no stranger. We've had him on before. And I can tell you, not only is he very sharp, well-read, and articulate, when it comes to these issues, that I also want to mention, very personable. We've gotten to meet in person. I, it still is a great memory that I, I look back at it. It's like, I get why people love Aaron. He's a very easygoing, personable fellow. And in addition, very excited. I, I mean, we've had a, a number of guests, but this is a very special one. This is Dr. Rana, this is, the, or I should say, Zespi Paul Fuzz. We are thrilled to have you as <clears throat> one to mention. A really distinguished background. In terms of the, we're going to come back for his bio. I want to mention Tim Hall. Thrilled to have you here as well. Tim Hall is on staff with One Minute Apologist. So if you've heard of Bobby Conway before, you have probably seen uh, some of the work of Tim as they have worked together on that ministry. And so we're excited to have all three of you. Tim is going to be a co-mod, so we're going to be moderating together. This is going to be basically an open discussion type of format. And with that, just want to let you know that if you are here for the first time, consider hitting that subscribe button as we are excited to have future debates in which we try to basically just offer a neutral platform. People can come in and discuss and think questions of life. And we don't have any sort of like after videos where we like trash on one side or anything like that. We're just like, hey, the channel has no positions other than but we're trying to build an eclectic community where people will feel welcome, whether they be Christian, atheists, Republicans, Democrats, Jedi, or even Sith. We are glad to have you here. It's always a pleasure. So, want to let you know, the gentlemen have their links in the description. So if you're listening, you're like, hmm, I'm really enjoying this. I want you to know you can easily click on their links that are waiting right down there in the description box. 
for you. So, lots of exciting stuff. I want to mention, I had mentioned before, I just pulled up the file. Forgive me, I, I just had it uh, minimized and embarrassed. But, we have uh, Dr. Fuzzrana, or Fuzz's biography. I want to read this as, uh, this is the first time that he's here, so we just want to give you plenty of information on his background. He is the Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe. <clears throat> he is the author of several groundbreaking books, including Who Was Adam, Creating Life in the Lab, The Cells Design, and Dinosaur Blood in the Age of the Earth. So, very exciting. He holds a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. So, it's going to be a, it's a true pleasure to have all of you here, gentlemen. And as mentioned, all the links are in the description. This is going to be an open conversation. Then Tim and I will be taking turns reading questions at the end during the Q&A portion. And that'll just be kind of an alternating back and forth. Super Chats go to the top of the list, and they allow you to make a comment towards one of the guests. They can, or if you want, for both of the guests, they would get a chance to respond to. With that, thrilled to have you here, gentlemen. It's just kind of an easygoing conversation, you know, kind of a... Very chill. So thrilled to have you. And, and Dr. Rana, if you kind of want to maybe just go with an untimed, informal kind of uh, kind of lead in into why you would answer yes to the question whether or not biology needs to die. Yeah, well, thanks. And it's uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I appreciate the invitation to be with you guys this evening. Uh, yeah, yeah, for me, uh, the reason why I would say yes to that question is because. Uh, my work in biochemistry led me to the conviction that there had to be a mind that was responsible for the origin and, and the basic or the fundamental design of life. Um, I was uh, agnostic when I started graduate school. I wasn't sure if God existed, and I honestly could have cared less one way or the other. Uh, and yet, as I uh, began to immerse myself in the study of biochemical systems, was deeply impressed with their elegance and their sophistication. There's a, an element of ingenuity about the way biochemical systems are structured, the way they function. And I began to ask the question, how is it that uh, biochemists explain the genesis of these systems? Because these are very different than the types of chemical systems that as a chemist I would work with or manipulate in a laboratory setting. And of course, you know, the, the grand explanation is that evolutionary mechanisms would have accounted for the origin of life and hence the origin of biochemical systems. Yet when I examined those explanations, I didn't find them to be compelling. And, and so I concluded that it, indeed it does look like there is a mind behind everything. And uh, this was maybe 30, 35 years ago now where I reached this conviction. And over the last three decades, as I've continued to probe this question, I see that the, the case for design in biochemistry has become only stronger. And I think that the case against uh, chemical evolution has become, uh, again, stronger as well. And it's not to say that uh, there's not interesting work that's going on in original life research. There is uh, some very creative um, uh, individuals that are working in this area that have had some very interesting ideas proposed over the span of the last three decades. But I don't think any of these ideas really get us any closer to understanding the origin of life through evolutionary means. And uh, on top of that, we now have work that's been done and continuing to be done in synthetic biology, 
where the goal is to, to go into a laboratory as part of this research program and to create artificial life forms, including uh, protocells. And what that work to me is showing is that if you don't have intelligent agency as a fundamental component uh, to, these, uh, to this work, you're never going to turn chemical systems into, into something that begins to resemble uh, life on Earth, or, you know, the, or, or even the simplest life on Earth. And so to me, when you look at those three prongs of, of reasoning, I think they all uh, converge at this idea that there has to be a mind behind everything when it comes to the, the origin and the, and the design of life. Thank you very much. And then with that, we'll just smoothly transition into the open conversation. So, Aaron, glad to have you as well. Thank you. And the floor is yours. Yeah, well, my first thing is that you know, similarly, when I uh, when I was uh, studying biology in college, I, I, I used to believe, you know, we're going to have the reversal of positions here. I mean, I used to believe that there was a supernatural essence of life that uh, I actually argued in a class that was teaching evolution back around 1990 or thereabouts. Uh, I was arguing for intelligent design, believe it or not. And, and the, the example that I used was the Venus flytrap and how you had to have all these uh, elements together in order for it to work at all. And I since have undermined my own argument. Whereas I used to believe that uh, that there was some, I don't know, that there was some supernatural essence to the mind. I eventually concluded through you know, studies of, at, at, at the not just at the molecular level with seeing how synapses work and everything, I realized that there's not only is there not a need for that, but there's really not even a place for it. And then as far as the sophistication of organisms that you were talking about, I mean, looking at, again, at the, at the molecular level and looking at the way, um, with the, with the way plants do, uh, what is it, the, the way that the chloroplasts do, what is the process, I forget the name of it, you know what I'm talking about, when you're turning the sunlight into energy. Photosynthesis? Thank you, thank you, the word escaped me. So looking at that, that ridiculous, convoluted Rube Goldberg mechanism, I had to think that you know, no intelligence is, is going to come up with this. This has to be a haphazard construct. Now, beyond that, of course, we don't have, uh, we don't have a mechanism for a god, we don't have uh, an indication at all for a god. Uh, at, at best, the very best of the argument is always the god of the gaps. I don't understand it, therefore magic. Or the, the tendency that we humans have to imagine agency in everything. And it's easy to say that because we are social creatures, we have this thing where we assume that uh, at, at any time, somebody could be watching us that we may not see. and it could be a predator you know, or something like that at a very simple explanation, or it could be somebody who's admiring us from afar or whatever. So we imagine that whatever we do, we have to pretend that there's somebody might be watching, you know, have, have some sense of conduct there. And then we start thinking about how other people that, that these secret watchers, whoever's watching what we do is terribly interested in everything that we do. And they, they hear every, every word that we say, we, they, they detect every mistake that we make somehow, some being understands even what we think so that we can now communicate telepathically with these things. And so you get this idea of gods in this kind of respect, but there's no reason to believe that literally. There's no reason to believe, I'm very familiar with that. I saw it 20 years ago. I've yet to see a reason to believe 
frauds, falsehoods, and fallacies have all been, uh, every anti-evolution argument I've ever seen has fallen into these categories. So I have a handful of questions for you. You said that, you, that the, the argument against evolution was becoming stronger every day. I'm a little surprised at that because evolution is something that I've been offering this challenge to prove evolution to your satisfaction over the last 20 years. And although I've gotten maybe 20 people to initially accept that challenge, once they realize that I can actually do it, they bail. Only once has anybody ever gone through the entire process. That person obviously did go through the course of questions and uh, decide that evolution is actually a thing. And then she married me. But that was the only time anybody's ever gone through that whole series of questions. It seems to be that they have to misrepresent everything that evolution is and do their best not to understand it for fear that they may accept it. And on the, the, the issue of the God question, the, the, the argument against evolution or, or using evolution and creationism as, a, as an argument for deity is a little mystifying to me. That's what I labeled in my book, the first foundational falsehood of creationism. The idea that you either have to accept a godless evolution or you have to accept that God created everything without natural processes when the superior intelligence would have devised the mechanism. So if you only had Genesis 1 where it says that the earth brings forth or let the earth bring forth these different organisms, well, that, that, that perfectly matches evolution. Let's just let it be that. But then they had to write in this other mythology which, you know, creating man out of mud and you know, the woman out of, a, out of a rib and having that somehow be different from the way that they created all the other life forms. Now we're, now we're unable to distinguish doctrine from deity. We can't question whether the books that men wrote to tell these stories, to explain things they didn't understand. We have to somehow preserve them over every other indication, except that they're the, the best champions of evolution historically and currently have been Christians. Theodosius Dobbs-Gansey was an Orthodox Christian who was the first one to document uh, an, obs an observance of speciation, which is categorized as macro, that's M-A, you know, macro evolution in the lab, for example. Dr. Kenneth Miller is, an or is a uh, traditional Catholic and he was a star witness against intelligent design in the Kitzmiller versus Dover trial, which proved that an intelligent design is in fact creationism under a false guise that kind of uh, uh, blunt and many other defenders like uh, Dr. Robert T. Bacher, who was a paleontologist who was the, the, the reference for dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. He's a Pentecost, a Pentecostal preacher, as well as having PhDs from uh, Johns Hopkins and Harvard. So you don't, you can be create, you can be Christian and still believe in this God and still believe that things happen all, all according to his plan, which means that all of these random, seemingly random occurrences that, you know, that for the mutations that then become deterministic in, in cases of uh, population mechanics leading to evolution, God could orchestrate all of that just like he orchestrates the lottery or every other seemingly random thing that happens in your life. So my question for you is, you said the, uh, the, the case against evolution is getting stronger every day. I've yet to hear a case against evolution, but I'm curious to hear what it is. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, I think we need to be careful so that we're not talking past each other, uh, because uh, the point I was making is not uh, biological evolution, but chemical evolution. So I'm talking what, about what, what do you what is chemical evolution? 
it, so I'm, I'm specifically looking it for me, what was compelling and still is compelling is the fact that when it comes to the origin of life, where we're looking at uh, the, the self-assembly of the very first cells on earth through quote unquote, an unguided process, that's where I think you've got uh, essentially a, a significant Achilles heel when it comes to the, a naturalistic or materialistic paradigm, looking at the, the totality of the origin and the history of life. So at, at this point, I think I would distinguish between chemical evolution and biological evolution. And, you know, and so to me, it, when I'm, when you, Chemical I, evolution is already a confusing term because in, in, in science, if we use the word evolution, we're, as in the context of the theory of evolution, then we're only talking about you know, population genetics, descent with inherent modification, right. that sort of thing. Right. But what that's you're what you're talking I, about is abiogenesis. Right. And but that's what I was in that process. That, I mean, there's a whole lot of different chemical processes we know are involved in that. Are you, which of them are you denying? Okay. So, what what I'm saying, I'm referring oh, one to one second, one second. Just forgive me. I hate to cut you off, Dr. Rana. This is yeah. just to be sure that we're if we if we take a back step. I know there are a few points that you had, Dr. Rana. I just want to give you a chance to respond right. to each of the things that were brought up. Go ahead. Oh, okay, okay, sure, sure. So yeah, so you know, again, uh, my opening statement was involving uh, what I would call chemical evolution, which is uh, again is is. Uh, Aaron points out is also equivalent to uh, the term abiogenesis or the origin of life. This is what I was referring to. I wasn't referring to biological evolution. And uh, there are a number of different scenarios that people have laid out for how uh, chemical evolutionary process because processes could have generated the very first cells. You have uh, membrane first scenarios, metabolism first scenarios, uh, replicator for scenarios, and all of those scenarios essentially culminate in dead ends. None of them are capable of going from simple molecules to essentially uh, the, the, the simplest uh, cell that we could envision. Uh, and and, and the, the problem isn't so much that uh, people haven't identified potentially uh, uh, potential chemical reactions that could contribute to the origin of life. Most definitely people have over the last 60, uh, 70 years that people have been working on this problem as an experimental science. The problem is, is that the chemistry that we've identified works wonderfully in a laboratory setting where you have, again, organic chemists supervising and overseeing uh, the processes in the laboratory. But as soon as you try to translate that chemistry to conditions that would have existed on the early earth, you wind up with essentially unrealistic scenarios for that chemistry proceeding. And in fact, uh, uh, earlier this year, there was a, a, a perspectives piece published in one of the nature journals. Uh, maybe it was either nature communications or uh, science reports or scientific reports where uh, the title of the article was um, prebiotic chemistry and human intervention, where this um, original life researcher was essentially acknowledging that the work that's been done in prebiotic chemistry over the course of the last, again, 50, 60 years is largely been irrelevant because the success of those experiments in the laboratory is largely predicated on the role that the researcher is playing. And in fact, Simon Conway Morris in his book, Life Solution, argued that you know, the, the hand of the researcher in a, for all intents and purposes becomes the hand of God. And so you know, what you have here is, a, is essentially 
an inability to explain how chemicals can organize into the very first cells. You couple that with the fact that when we look at biochemical systems, the more that we learn about these systems, the more that they seem to be incredibly elegant, sophisticated systems uh, that are anything but convoluted. Uh, there is a mole exquisite mo molecular rationale that we've unearthed that, that describes the way these systems operate. So to me, when we're talking about the question, does biology point to God? The place that we want to begin, I think, is with the origin of life and the fundamental design of life. And once we can establish uh, whether or not there's a, ne a necessary role for a mind when it comes to the origin of life, then we can begin to look at the history of life uh, in either theistic or uh, non-theistic terms. So, so to me, uh, the, I think that, again, I'm not looking at this juncture at whether or not uh, biological evolution is sufficient to explain uh, the totality of life. I'm just simply looking at what does it take to even go from uh, an inanimate system begins to assume the properties of life. And, you know, when you look at that, that kind of work in prebiotic chemistry, where again, the people are recognizing that as researchers, intelligent agency has played an unwitting role in the success of prebiotic chemistry. I don't think you're far removed from uh, concluding that indeed a creator must exist. And, you know, to me, um, uh, in terms of the, the case for design, uh, you know, I'm working on a series of blog articles right now describing uh, and summarizing work that's gone on for, oh, probably about 20 years now, looking at the nature of the genetic. I'm not talking about uh, the, 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 the information content in DNA, which sometimes people will inappropriately refer to as the genetic code. I'm talking about actual, the actual genetic code, which are the set of rules that, that convert the information in DNA into the information in amino acid sequences that make up proteins. And we've known for, for 20 years that the genetic code is exquisitely optimized uh, to, uh, to, to tolerate um, errors that could result from substitution mutations. And in the last few years, people have shown that is, the genetic code is also capable of tolerating, is optimized to tolerate mutations from what are called frame shift mutations, and is also optimized to harbor multiple overlapping codes and to also uh, harbor or support overlapping genes. And so you have this multidimensional optimality to the code that's just been recognized by researchers from uh, Germany. And uh, these researchers are basically argue there's no way you can search the, the code space in the time you have it uh, available for the origin of life process for evolutionary processes to account for the, the exquisite design of the genetic code. Hey, and to me, let's, uh, let's, forgive let's, me just, to, just to be sure that I know there's a lot of information us, right. is that uh, just to, so it's not too much to keep track of on either side, we can kick it back to Arne. Sure. Yeah, well, I, don't, I, don't, I lack the, uh, the ability to see the elegance, I guess, in any of these systems. I mean, you're saying that, that people conducting these experiments have somehow unwittingly caused them to happen, I guess. Like uh, I, the way, like I've seen a number of these uh, these reports about different type, different stages of the abiogenic process. Because we're not talking about any one thing. That is, you, you mentioned that some people have different hypotheses that they hold to. Uh, there's actually at least, like, I think, 12 to 14 different hypotheses, almost all of which could be true at the same time. 
I mean, one that I don't accept is panspermia because it's unnecessary. We can produce almost every aspect of it here on Earth, and uh, there's no need for anything to, to come from outer space. I myself go put the, the RNA first, and I think we've got substantial evidence for that. They've shown how, how ribonucleotides have been, can be constructed in the lab, how, uh, how, how this can be autocatalytic, how they can, how they can develop without, a, without an enzyme, so forth. And you're saying that, that, that people construct, and these are all in prebiotic earth situations, and you're saying that, that, that people are unwittingly causing, by, by setting up the parameters of what, of what we're expecting of a prebiotic yeah, earth yeah, yeah, let me let me let me give you let me give you uh, with regard to the RNA first scenario or the RNA world scenario, or which is a, a replicator first scenario. Uh, just a specific example of what I'm talking about. I can remember back in the mid 1990s when, um, oh, good grief, the researcher's name uh, escapes me now. Uh, he's at he's at uh, University of uh, New York in in Buffalo. Uh, SUNY Buffalo, and uh, I'll, I'll think of his name here in a minute, but he did this landmark study where he, he showed that if you have RNA building blocks in an aqueous system and you expose them to a clay surface, that you can very quickly, uh, within, within a few weeks, assemble an RNA polymer. And this was heralded as being a major breakthrough for the RNA world with the idea being that you could have clays on the early earth that could sequester RNA building blocks achieving the necessary concentration you would need to drive those chemical reactions and then could also function as a catalyst. You know, really exciting work. And, um, uh, and yet when you examine the details of that, that experimental setup, uh, you very quickly see the role, again, that intelligent agency plays in that. So for example, the, the RNA building blocks that were used were chemically modified with a, an, a, an activating group that made those building blocks uh, inherently more reactive. And these materials would have never existed on the early earth as activated nucleotides. And if somehow they formed, they would be so reactive that they would react with all kinds of other materials that would have been present on the earth. These experiments were very careful to exclude any kind of contaminating material that likely would have been present. For example, very careful to exclude uh, the presence of certain metals that would have been present on the early earth that essentially hydrolyze RNA molecules as they form. Uh, they also were careful to exclude materials that would inhibit the growth of the RNA chain. They stopped the reaction before the RNA molecules got too long, and, which would mean that they would be irreversibly absorbed on the clay surface. But to me, the kicker was you had to uh, basically buy the clay that would use as a catalyst in an experiment from a particular supplier, and then you had to treat it in a laboratory with an elaborate procedure to prepare it to function as a catalyst. And, and then you have to run the reaction in highly pure distilled water, which would never have existed on the earth. So yeah, you can assemble RNAs from RNA building blocks using clay as a catalyst, but if it wasn't for the, the involvement of the researchers in this work, uh, there's no way that you would actually be able to, to envision how RNAs would form on the early Earth. And in fact, I heard uh, this work presented at an Origin of Life conference a number of years ago. And in the audience was a, a, a person by the name of Robert Shapiro, who had the nickname of being Dr. No in the Origin of Life research community because he was a, a, a skeptic in himself. 
And uh, I remember during the Q&A session, uh, uh, raising his hand and uh, basically saying, look, what you've done with your work here is, is demonstrated intelligent design. And, and, and I now remember the name of the researcher was a guy named Jim Ferris, who again, did incredibly elegant work in the laboratory, no question about that. But to me, uh, this is just one example. And literally we could go through every conceivable step in the RNA world hypothesis and I could show you why researcher involvement is so critical to making that work. Uh, you, you just simply would not have uh, organic chemists on the early earth to superintend the process in the way that you would need for, uh, for uh, an origin of life scenario. So, so okay. to me, yeah. Uh, yeah, so you get the point. And again, I, I need to specify, we're not talking about a single scenario. We're talking about many different ones, many different processes that are working in some cases sequentially. So like when you bring in the Montmorillonite clay, for example, that's already gone through a number of other prior stages, you know, where, they, where they, they've noticed these, uh, these certain chemicals will become increasingly compact, complex after repeated cycles of inundation, irradiation, and dehydration, you know, not necessarily in that order. So, I mean, there's a lot of different steps to that, but at no point does it imply orchestration. And you said you don't have a problem with evolution, which... No, I didn't say that necessarily. I'm just saying I, that I that I my 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 point was, to me the way I think about this is I first think about the question of the origin of life, and and in the, the fundamental design of life, and from there I begin to think uh, about the history of life and the in the design of biological systems. Uh, so so to me that's that's my starting and, point. And my my point would be I mean I do uh, I I. I I like to, to classify life forms. I mean, my, my pet project that has actually become a real thing is the Phylogeny Explorer project, where we were mapping the entire taxonomic tree of life into a single navigable online encyclopedia, which we're shooting to get peer review status for. And the way that life forms are classified just on, just on its own already indicates that they, they were not created, certainly not any, any species being created with the with a predetermined purpose. That certainly isn't the case. So, I mean, when you talk about biology, if you're only talking about abiogenesis, then you're in pretty safe hands because we don't know all the processes yet. We only know like for a couple of organelles, for example, not all of them, but I can't speak to a lot of that. I can talk about evolution and phylogenetics and taxonomy, in which case I, when you said that you had an argument against evolution, then you changed it from evolution to abiogenesis, so, and then you said not necessarily you don't have a problem with evolution. So I'll get back to the original question again. What is the problem that you have or that you see with evolution? Yeah, and, and you from, you know, and again, to be fair, I don't think I was changing anything when I made my opening statement. I was just simply saying, for me personally, it was the origin of life problem that convinced me along with the elegant design of biochemical systems that there was a mind. Well, and you, and so I think once you-, you didn't, you did say that you did not have a problem with evolution and then went back later and said, well, not, it's not necessarily true. So do you in fact have a problem with evolution? And if so, what is it? I, I'm, I'm skeptical about aspects of, uh, of biological evolution, about the okay. idea that uh, natural process mechanisms could fully account for the, the, the total history of life and for the design of life. At what point do you imagine there should be a supernatural process involved? Well, to me, when I look at the, the, the history of life on Earth, 
Uh, every time we see what I would call uh, changes in in the the regime of complexity from one regime to another. What is a regime? Uh, where, well, oh, well, let me get me, let me be specific. So when we go from let's say um, the origin of life would be one example where this is a major transition in the okay, history. Well, we're, of life we're talking about evolution now. Molecules, but... right, right. But yeah, please let me finish. So we're going from molecules to the very first cells. When we now talk about the transition from a prokaryotic world to a world where there are eukaryotic cells, that, that would be the thing that I was that would be the thing that I was just talking about, where we don't know the the cause for the formation right. of all the organisms. Right, but but so right, but right. So this is this transition uh, ha is is characterized by something called the eukaryotic Big Bang, where you have what appears to be this explosive appearance of again all the major groups of eukaryotic organisms showing up uh, basically very, very suddenly in Earth's history. What we've learned about the last uh, eukaryotic common ancestor is that it's as complex as, um, as, the, as a typical eukaryotic cell, uh, that there, there seems to be no intermediate grade between a prokaryotic cell and a eukaryotic organism. Another place where we see a major transition in life would be um, with uh, the, the, the Cambrian explosion where we're seeing the first appearance of body plans on the earth. That again happens in, a, in an explosive fashion. And so those would be three examples of, of what I would call complexity regimes that are taking place or changes in complexity regimes that, that seem to, to be happening in an explosive manner but also these are places where I see the evolutionary paradigm struggling to provide a, a cogent explanation. Not that there's not been models that have been proposed. Same thing is true with the origin of life question. There have been models that have been proposed, but these models are not very satisfactory and, and really lack uh, a compelling reason to think that you've somehow got natural process explanation. Okay, so, so now I'm, I'm perfectly fine with once you have a, 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 that kind of a transition happening, allowing for evolution at at a you know um, no no debate over of course microevolution or speciation or, or uh, evolution happening at the level of a genus or a family. Um, uh, it, once you start getting to the level of an order or to a class or a phylum, that's where I be, begin to see again and and. A create a creativity that's necessary in the process that I'm just simply not convinced exists, okay. and this would be so, you know called like, the novelty problem. All right. So what you're saying is that we don't have an adequate explanation for the things that we that for one thing that we haven't actually explained, and then another thing that we have, and that's the Cambrian explosion. We do have very good explanations for that, and I can show you those explanations. I don't know that you'll be satisfied because you're then also calling for a creative explanation for which. The creationist has, you say that we don't have an adequate explanation. The creationist has absolutely no explanation whatsoever, period. Uh, for the case that you're talking about, when you talk about the taxonomic order of the taxonomic levels of the genus or species, you'll accept those. By the way, speciation is macroevolution, M-A, not M-I. It's not microevolution anymore. So the observances of speciation that we have are actually macroevolution. A lot of people getting confused about that, but when you look them up on, on scientific educational sources, that is the definition. The variation at or above the species level, the formation of a new species, that is macroevolution. 
I've offered a, a, a challenge uh, many years ago called the phylogeny challenge, wherein people like yourself will argue that you'll accept some degree of speciation at the species level or the genus level, and sometimes maybe even at a higher level, depending on what kind of contortions you need to make. Like Ken Ham says, arbitrarily, he'll, uh, he'll, he'll change where the beginning of created kinds are, and he'll accept taxonomy, normal taxonomy from that point on. So the challenge is to identify any two uh, species that scientists would consider to be closely related, but that creationists or people who want to argue for baromenology or whatever idea you want to come up with an alternative, what you would say are not related. Give me an example of how do we identify one of these created kinds. Give me any, preferably should be three, but I'll ask just for two. Two that are closely related and that you say are different created kinds. Yeah, so um, I'm not sh completely sure I I'm, know what you're asking for, Arn. so uh, sorry about that. Okay, well, uh, let me see. Uh, are, are all of the felines, I mean, we have cats all fall into two basic categories for the living cats. We have panthers and we have felines. And that's the simplest way you can put it. I mean, bobcats, lynx, they're in one group. They're like in a subclass by themselves. Cougars and cheetahs are also felines in another subclass by themselves. And then, you, of course, you have your house cats. You've got a bunch of sand cats and, and uh, various other felines that are wild cats. Um, are they all related? Yeah, I mean, I have no problem with... Uh, okay, so what about our... ...binary perspective that, that you could account for... Okay. For cats. So then the next stage of that, if, if you accept that all felines are related, then are panthers related to felines? Yeah, no problem with that. Okay. And the, the, the Smilodon, the, the various uh, scimitar cats that we have in the fossil record, which are another completely distinct group, but still called cats, are they related? Yeah, no problem with that. Okay. Nimravids, which is another lower order of the uh, uh, carnivorans almost cats, virtually cats. They just need a slight change in the structure of the middle ear to be cats. Are they related as well? Yeah, probably. So all yeah, of so carnivora then would all be included so that dogs now are related to cats. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, uh, I would have to think about, um, I mean, I've not thought about that question before, so I'd have to give it some more thought. Uh, but, but to me, I think you're, you're missing the larger point, And that is, that there, there seems to be, to be uh, again, key transitions in the history of life where we, we don't have a compelling evolutionary explanation. Now, I'm not arguing for God of the gaps. I'm not saying because of that, that means, therefore, that there must be a creator involved. But what I am saying is that, uh, that what we have as a, a natural process mechanistic explanation seems to be lacking at that point. And, 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 you know, I would, I would point out that there is a very rich history in biology prior to Darwin, where people viewed the, the, the biological systems in, from a teleological framework. In fact, you had Sir Richard Owen, who is considered by many to be one of the founding fathers of comparative anatomy, uh, who elaborated the concept of homology and who, who argued that homolo homologous systems could uh, are, are explained through uh, an archetype that, according to Owen, existed in the mind of a creator that was, you know, manifested in the created order. And so I've 
follow after Owen. I, I would ascribe to some kind of archetype biology, if you will. That's an so for Owen, concept. So, so for Owen, the shared designs reflected uh, essentially a, a, a design that flowed from a single mind. And of course, Darwin comes along and, and takes Owen's concept of homology and he evolutionizes the archetype to make it a hypothetical com, a common ancestor. So the point is, is that, that when it comes to, to classification and, and looking at homologous structures, uh, you, you could see those as reflecting essentially design. So I would argue that there is a, a, a basic design of which you can have evolutionary mechanisms varying that design, but that there's a limit to the capacity of those mechanisms uh, to create biological novelty. Well, and I'm the, still the limit of capacity is simply that the more specialized you get, the more you are likely to uh, eliminate options. So you're you're better off. You're more versatile if you're generalized. That's that's it. I mean, uh, uh, Richard Owen uh, had some very interesting ideas in that God was a tinkerer who would uh, improve with trial and error on his designs. And that's why uh, Sir Richard Owen began fudging figures and falsifying his own studies so that he, he would present false data. Like he argued that, the, that, that apes or that humans had a part of the brain that apes, or that apes had a part of the brain that humans did not, for example. And this was what uh, enabled Huxley to indict him. And which was ultimately the reason that he was kicked out of the Royal Society. I mean, he did a lot of heinous things as far as his, his research and, and falsifying data and so forth. I mean, he said, he, he refused to accept that birds could be related to reptiles because he had this weird belief that birds take care of their young and mammals take care of their young. And he insisted that dinosaurs be lizards and that that meant that they had to be slow and sluggish and stupid and cruel. So when all the evidence came in to show that they were not, that, that, that in fact, dinosaurs and birds were the same thing, Owen refused to accept that for religious reasons. And that ultimately ended his career. Well, you know, the, the, I mean, in, in Owen's day, I, I've, I've read, the, there's a, I'm, again, draw, it's happening with age. I'm drawing a blank on the, on the, the, the well, I know, I know that, I know that symptom. I share that with you. So, yeah. So, <laughs> I so, couldn't remember photosynthesis a little bit ago. <laughs> but yes, but this is a, a definitive biography written about uh, Sir Richard Owen. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, have gone through that biography because I'm fascinated with Owen. And I, and I do know I would that Owen was a, a very difficult personality uh, to be certain. In fact, his debate that, you know, the, the, um, the Wilberforce Huxley debate where Owen was supposedly feeding Wilberforce information was essentially a, a proxy debate between Owen and Huxley. And it was motivated in large measure because Owen and Huxley didn't care for one another whatsoever. So there was, a, there was personality involved, but Owen in, in his day was considered to be the preeminent biologist in, uh, in the UK. He's responsible for coining the term dinosaur. He's responsible for the modern day natural history museum systems. Again, uh, the, his, his idea of the archetype is a very sophisticated, elaborate theory that he proposed to the Royal Society. So. He was held uh, throughout his career in high regard, and you know the, some of these specific things that you're citing, uh, you know, that are well, you, you essentially say trying to under career, huh? You, you say throughout his career, but 
Yeah. And, and by some interpretation, that might be true. But in his later years, he was he wrote letters about himself in third person that he then sent to press. Right. Praising himself and vilifying his enemies. And all of this eventually came back on him. Do you remember when he when he took the, the, the guy? I forget his name again, who, who discovered the first dinosaur identified as such iguanodon. Right. And then this guy had some terrible spinal problem. And uh, and Owen ended up getting custody of his corpse and then putting him up as a as a museum exhibit to show off his distorted spine in an in a other sense, just showing off his disrespect for the man. He famously quoted other people's progress and, and assumed it as his own. He just portrayed it where he he sold it as his own work. And so can I ask the relevance of this? Yeah. It, well, I mean, my, my point of citing Sir Richard Owen was that he proposed this idea of an archetype. Right, which, essentially, which does not work. Right, just, let's just cut to the chase and stay on topic. It does not work. The phylogeny, well, challenge, I, I, the phylogeny I, I, challenge does work if there was if there was any fundamental flaw to evolution at all, then there would have to be an answer to the phylogeny challenge. And if there was any credence whatsoever to creationism of anything more than say eukaryotes themselves. I mean, if God could have created just a eukaryote and then let that go, okay, fine. Uh, we're gonna have, evolution will run on from there, but you're talking about something different. And I argue, and I've, I've explained that the processes leading to the origin of prokaryotes are not evolutionary processes because horizontal gene transfer, endosymbiosis, these are not evolutionary mechanisms, right? You have to have a descent with inherent genetic modification. And where that takes over more or less consistently, even if there is a degree of, you know, of horizontal gene transfer, you still get actual evolution from that point on. So we would not say that even if our, even if our cells, all of them consist of uh, bacterial cells, we would not say that we evolve from bacteria because it's a completely different set of process or it's a different process than any of those prior ones. Sticking with biology, you said there was a creative problem with, uh, with the, the Cambrian explosion, for example. I contest, there is not. The, the, the only difficulty we had is uh, that it's difficult to find microscopic fossils. It's difficult to find fossils of soft bodies. Not always impossible. And we have in fact found a whole bunch of pre-Cambrian fossil forms, be, including some precursors to forms that we have today. So those do exist in pre-Cambrian fossils. And we have one or possibly two phyla, phyla that were already extinct before the Cambrian explosion. And then another phyla that didn't, didn't yet exist until late in the end of it. Buzz, do you agree with that characterization and the, the information that he's laying out? Well, I mean, we, we do have uh, uh, a fossil record prior to the Cambrian, and perhaps the most prominent fossil record would be the Ediacaran fo fossils that we see. And those are uh, highly enigmatic fossils that, oops, those are highly enigmatic fossils that, um, uh, that, uh, don't necessarily have obvious connections to organisms in the Cambrian. Uh, but, but to me, you know, yes, indeed, there are some animal phyla that do appear prior to the Cambrian. Arguably, there may be a few phyla that appear afterward, but by and large, when we're looking at the, the Cambrian explosion, somewhere between 50 to 80% of the animal phyla that have ever existed show up explosively. 
And, and, and to well, me, you have to, you have to clarify that too, because we're talking okay. about a period of 50 million years. Well, you know, right? that's, I, that's well, the, Cam explosive. the Cambrian period is, is whatever, 400 and five, let's say, sorry, 540 million years ago to about 490 million years ago. But when you look at, for example, the Shenzhen uh, fauna in, in China, you're looking at the, the base of the Cambrian at the lower Cambrian and you see an incredibly rich diversity of phyla. And, mm -hmm. and for example, you, you, when it comes to uh, the, the origin of deuterosomes, which is what we belong to, I mean, the, the evolutionary model is that you would have uh, essentially a, a kind of derms are supposed to be uh, the, the base of the, the deuterostome tree that gave rise to uh, hemichordates as a side branch. And then you have the uh, urochordates and then cephalochordates and then the jawless fish, you know, the, and then the jawed fish. Well, what we see in the Cambrian at the base of the Cambrian is essentially members of each of these phyla co-occurring in the fossil record. We don't see a sequential appearance. Uh, we see these things all co-occurring at the same time. Well, and, in, 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 in fact, there's terms. even phyla that, that don't exist today, the Viticulacola, that, that are also deuterostomes that appear. So in, in other words, you're not seeing this sequential appearance, but everything is showing up uh, simultaneously. Well, we, we are seeing a sequential appearance because you've got like Wewaxii, for example, that shows up before the Cambrian and other mollusks that show up after. And then you, you want to talk about the origin of deuterostomes. So you, you didn't mention saccharitis in there. I'm just wondering if you accept saccharitis as legitimately deuterostome because you also cited on top of, uh, on top of Richard Owen, you also cited Conway Morris, who again falsified his research when he, he came up with, he labeled saccharitis as a deuterostome for religious reasons because he wanted to promote that the idea of intelligent design. So the idea that you would have something like saccharitis that was so long ago, had no relation to modern beings, meant that that, that, that organism went extinct, just like the other two phyla that I were talking about that were pre-Cambrian. So he insisted on classifying them as deuterostomes, even though the, the classification of a deuterostome means, first of all, you have a nephrozoan, which is the earlier, the parent classification, which means that you have a through gut. So the organisms that have a through gut, mouth on one end, anus on the other. And then deuterostome is where the anus portion develops before the mouth in embryo. So that's what classifies us as deuterostome. So, so Conway Morris identified the saccharitis as a deuterostome, even though it does not have an anus and therefore does not have a through gut. But he refused to accept that God would allow whole lineages or phyla of organisms to go extinct. So he insisted on classifying it in a way that does not make sense. The way I found that out was that I had to I had to call a bunch of different scientists when I happened across this for my own phylogeny explorer project because he had it listed as a deuterostome and I said that's not what this is. Who made a mistake here? I wrote first to Conway Morris who refused to answer my email. Of course. Now, can you summarize, uh, Aaron, why that matters in in the debate? So I mean I think the information <laughs> like, the information is great, but uh, but for those of us that maybe aren't up on all the uh, exact technical language, okay. or if Fuzz wants to do it, but, but you you laid the out way the way that case. evolution works is completely different than the way creationists say that it works. Okay, can I stop is, you right there, just real quick? I just want to make sure. Okay, Fuzz, are you arguing for a creationist position in this debate? If you aren't, then whatever comes next. He did Aaron's say he was arguing for a creative yeah. aspect against evolution. Yeah, yeah. I, I am an old earth creationist. Okay. Uh, so, and so, uh, yeah. 
So okay, I that then, was my sorry, wife Aaron. when we met. Okay, Aaron, continue. Okay. Sorry. All right. So the, the creationists often portray the idea of one uh, that evolution is supposedly teaches that one kind of thing suddenly turned into or gave birth to another fundamentally different kind of thing. And so one of the things that they demand to see as far as evidence of evolution is that they want to see a pine tree give birth to an elephant or something like that. They want, they, they want the most ridiculous thing that they can think of when actually what evolution is, is descent with inherent modification. And uh, every new genus or species that ever evolved uh, was, only, was um, a change in physical or chemical proportions. It begins with superficial surface features atop successive tiers of fundamental similarities. It's the way that works. And then the, the, the further apart the relationship, the more they grow apart, then the deeper those differences will be. Very rarely do you have a developmental change uh, or a, um, well, yeah, that would still be a de developmental change. So like the, the appearance of amnios, uh, amnio in the egg or uh, it changes like what we were talking about, where when you have the blastopore, the first collection of cells, like you, you have a zygote, you have the two gamete cells fused together, you have a you have a zygote, then that starts replicating cells. At one point, you have a ball of cells with literally nothing else to it. It develops a hollow cavity in the middle and an, and an opening on one end. On protostomes, that opening is the mouth. When, it, when the, the, the animal develops, you know, that, that the, the mouth opens the tunnel all the way to the other side, that becomes the anus. And those organisms go on to be like insects, arthropods, things like that. And then on the other side, the development is, is backwards. The opening that opens first ends up being the anus. And the joke I like to tell is that there is literally a point in, when you're, in your development when you were literally nothing but an asshole. But, so the, the anus develops first, then opens the, the opening to the mouth. And that, that developmental change is significant. That's where all animals are. Now, this obviously implies evolution. God wouldn't do this. You know, it, it, there would be no reason for a God to do this. Well, we understand the reasons that this sort of thing happens. I mean, you, you, you have this trait in development that very rarely do you have an integral change. Like I said, with, with amniotes and the eggs, for example. Very rare, and so it's like only like four times in the history of our of our our lineage has a developmental change. Otherwise, it always starts out superficial surface features going deeper down. Right, and 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 I actually, you know, don't um, you know, I'm not opposed or don't disagree with your description of of you know the evolutionary process. But when we're talking about something like the Cambrian explosion. What we're talking about here is the, the origin of body plans, which does require developmental programs to be instantiated. And these programs are radically different from each other. So, so when so you're let's talk about that for a moment. When, so when, no, wait, let, me, let me finish my point. When we're going from one thank you. When we're going from one phylum to another phylum, okay, we're looking at radically different body plans that require radical reworking of the developmental regime and all the incumbent gene regulatory networks that are associated with this. In, the, in their graduate textbook um, on the Cambrian explosion, uh, Jim Valentine and Doug Irwin basically argue that the, our current understanding of evolutionary theory is inadequate to explain uh, how, we could, uh, how we would see the, the emergence of a phyla and then how one phyla could transition to another phyla. And, and, and they're calling for uh, essentially 
uh, they're a voice in the call for an extended evolutionary synthesis, which is the recognition that evolutionary theory seems to be inadequate to account for again. No, 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 the, the, things... the extended evolutionary synthesis isn't what you just said it is. It's the integration of it. It's the erroneous integration of endosymbiosis and horizontal gene transfer and uh, epigenetics. As well, I mean, there's some. It started out. Let me give you another summary for the audience. It started out Darwin's own ideas. He had natural selection and sexual selection. Those were the Darwinian mechanisms. So we had the idea of Darwinism. Then they realized that that Mendel had discovered genetics. This was a thing. So they gave uh, Mendel credit, and it became the modern synthesis of uh, Mendelo-Darwinian evolution. And then more recently, so that was like the yeah, Darwin was the 19th century. Mendel's modern synthesis was the 20th century, and then. With five years ago or so, uh, they have another meeting in London where they decide that they're going to integrate these other uh, elements as well, and then it becomes the extended evolutionary synthesis. But there's a there's a but there is a hot debate centering around this idea of an extended evolutionary synthesis. Where because endosymbiosis is not an evolutionary mechanism. Well, I, I get that. Right. Right. So, but I guess my point is. Here you have Jim Valentine and Doug Irwin, who are arguably two of the world's leading authorities on the Cambrian explosion and on the origin of body plans, who would have no sympathy to my position as a, as a creationist who readily acknowledge that the current structure of evolutionary theory does not seem to be able to account for the Cambrian explosion, uh, that, we, that there's not an evolutionary mechanism that can account for essentially the generation of the developmental regimes that you need to explain well, yeah. body plans or how you would go from one body plan to the other. And this is, but you don't, you don't go from one to the other. That's, that's the, another thing that you said when you, 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 you talked about a phylum becoming a different phylum. I said, that's an erroneous statement that creationists and only creationists make where they say that one kind becomes another fundamentally different kind. You never, ever, ever, ever have in evolution one phylum becoming another phylum. That's but that's what you would have to have in the Cambrian. But you would never have that. You can't have that. You're not allowed to have that. That would violate the laws of monophyly and biodiversity. You cannot have one phylum becoming another but, phylum. But, but you're making my point for me. This is exactly no, what this is no, exactly. I, what I realize you don't know. You don't get this. And you're trying to make a point that is invalid and you don't understand the correction being made. I am not making your point. The phylum, the, when what you're talking about, the, the interesting thing about the, the Cambrian explosion is that when this is when life went from single cell to multicellular and there's no body plan. So when, when cells become uh, like in slime molds, for example, like, like Dictostelium discordium, where they, they move around as a single unit and then you have cells that become internalized to the point that they can't they can't exist individually anymore the organism is much more efficient as a, as a collective whole so now you have specialized cells and once you have that you have a collection of different types of body plants and you can go in any direction and it seems that nature experimented with a whole lot of these different ideas every direction at once and some of them as i mentioned there were two phyla that went extinct before the Cambrian explosion so we know that some of those experiments failed now if you want to argue that god fails his own explanations, you're welcome to say that. You're obviously not talking for anything that I would recognize as a god. It's certainly not a supreme intelligence, maybe a superior one, but not supreme. And then we get into uh, all the different divisions that we have, that we have very little record for, because how do you find microscopic organisms in soft bodies? Where we have the Cambrian explosion is where 
things began to develop shells, and now they can be traced throughout the fossil record. Once shells came into existence, now they're everywhere. I'm going to so give a two-minute two-minute warning before we kind of start to wrap things up okay. here. So right. finish I, your point. And I then think we'll, I've we'll adequately made come my, back. But, but no, I, I want to say one last thing because the way that I the, the analogy that I make is when we invented air uh, flight, when we discovered flight, look at all the different types of airplane designs that we came up with in that first 20 years. I mean, look at look at the Wright brothers' first plane. What does that that doesn't look anything like a modern airplane? There were other designs that were that were literally floating around that were every bit as bizarre as that. They went every direction they possibly could until the, the ones that, that worked best ended up being, by population mechanics, ended up being the ones that we still have. And that's that's the whole explanation with the Cambrian explosion. Okay, but Fuzz, what you, what your, your, your example of a proliferation of airplane designs is essentially intelligent agencies producing that proliferation. Which of course is unnecessary when we talk about biology because it's self-replicating. Airplanes aren't self-replicating, so we have to replicate them. Yeah, but you I mean, the, I mean there are, there's this concept of a universal constructor, von Neumann's universal constructor, which is- Which is not evident in biology. Well, I, I beg to differ because- uh, Okay, you know, I, the, I have, I, we have to come up with a definition. My understanding of evidence in this, in this context now, we're not talking about history. It would have a different type of a, a definition. But in this context, evidence is a body of objectively verifiable facts, facts being objectively verifiable by definition, a body of facts that are positively indicative of or exclusively concordant with only one available uh, position or hypothesis over any other. Now, where you may have the opinion that everything that happened to you in the course of your life was orchestrated to happen in that order. How could you have met that person at that time, at that specific place? If everything had been off the, off the schedule by one minute, none of that would have happened. You'd have been a different person now, so God must have done it. That seems to be your position as you describe it to me. I obviously look at the coincidences that happened in my life, and I see them as coincidences, not orchestrated. That appears to be the differences in our position. Fuzz, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, well, um, I guess you know just to be just to be clear. I mean, my my point is this: that when we look at biochemical systems, when we look at biological systems, I think nobody disputes that there is this overwhelming appearance of design. And the question is, where does that design come from? Is it exclusively through mechanism alone, or uh, is there an intelligent agency that is that is undergirding life itself? And and, and to me, you know, as I, I pointed out. Uh, it, with uh, the origin of life question with biochemical systems, I think you do need to have a mind to explain life at, at, at life's origin and the basic design of life. And I think that framework allows us to look at the, the history of life and the designs that we see in biological systems from a design or a teleological perspective, and that there's a, a historical precedence for doing that, uh, again, with the, the work of Richard Owen. And, and people, you know, uh, that would would have been Owen's uh, contemporaries, and um, um, I'm not, you know, uh, there are again uh, key transitions in the history of life that I don't think we have adequate explanations for. I don't, I don't think there are any any key transitions like you're talking about. I did concede the the initial possibility of being the origin of eukaryotes because that's not an evolutionary mechanism, but once it becomes right. evolution. Yeah, we do got that. But but I do actually think, Arn, that you and I do agree on the, the I mean, I, I'm I'm not, you know, there's aspects I think of evolutionary theory that we would be in in full agreement on. 
Um, and I think there's just places where I see in, in the, I'm not satisfied with the evolutionary explanations. Uh, but, but to me, again, ultimately, I'm not making a God of the gaps argument, though it may seem like that's what I'm doing because we focus so much on what I see to be inadequacies of the evolutionary paradigm. To me, when I do look at biological systems, I just, I see elegant designs. And you know, to me, what, you know, what makes the case that these systems in biology are elegantly designed, I think is the work that we're seeing in biomimetics and bioinspiration, where engineers are routinely turning to designs in biology uh, to inspire uh, new technologies and to solve engineering problems. And I think that in and of itself is, uh, exemplifies the fact that these designs in biology are sophisticated, they're remarkable designs, they're far more sophisticated than anything that we could conceive of. Uh, as Which they would have to be if they're an emergent <laughs> property from the molecular level. That's, inex that's, that's in, in, inescapable. And that's the problem. You can either look at emergent patterns of complexity, which you're going to have from anything coming from the molecular level. Those, are, those things are going to be more detailed by necessity than any, any hand could sculpt them infinitely. So then we end up with a different perspective in that you, we, you and I look at the same thing and you see that it's being orchestrated from the top down where I see that there's too much evidence against that. There's all kinds of evidence that this is not being orchestrated efficiently from the top down, can't be. But we do see how it is emerging from the bottom up. So, and these are actually consistent. I mean, why is 8% of our genome you know, made of endogenous retroviruses? Why do we have common links genetically in mutations in our genome that are shared with other apes and they're shared with other monkeys, right? There is so much connecting us genetically, which also shows that if we're talking about emergence being on the, uh, on the level of population mechanics, never an individual turning into another individual, but instead a population becoming two virtually distinct populations and then be beginning or become continuing to become more diverse. These are emergent properties, not administrated. So it's not coming from an intelligent design. It's an emergent design. It's incidental design. Uh, I think that's the good. That's a good kind of distinction. Uh, while we're waiting on questions, so I'm I'm waiting on uh, some questions here. I'd like to ask kind of my own question of both of you, sure. uh, and I think I would love to get both of your insights on your explanation or your understanding of irreducibly complex systems. So Fuzz, maybe we'll start with you, just because you're on the left side of my screen, and I read left to right, and we'll go to. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, um, you know, uh, I I am and. Um, you know, I am an old earth creationist, and so I, I am sympathetic to the idea that there are designs in uh, biological systems and in biochemical systems that are intelligently designed. Um, and uh, I would argue that uh, irreducible complexity is a marker for design, but um, I, I don't like the way that that argument is typically presented by uh, ID proponents. And, and by people that would you know, share my views as, as, uh, you know, as creationists. Uh, because th this claim that you hear that irreducibly complex systems can only be uh, can't be produced through evolutionary processes is not val a valid claim. Um, the, the, through the, the, the use of, or the mechanism of co-option, I think evolutionary biologists have suggested at least in principle a way in which, um, in which irreducible complex systems could emerge. Now, 
Having said that, I, I would point out that uh, many designs that human beings produce are irreducibly complex. And so when you see irreducible complexity, uh, I mean, it, it, it's characteristic of human designs, and therefore you could take that as being suggestive of design in biochemical systems. But I don't think I would make the claim that you cannot, it, it must be designed because you can't explain it through evolutionary means. I mean, my approach to arguing for design is to actually uh, look to the work of William Paley, and I present what I would call a revitalized watchmaker argument, where my argument for design is that uh, biochemical systems have the, the characteristics or the properties of human designs, and therefore it's reasonable to think that these are the work of a mind. And then I would point to things like, for example, the genetic code, which we simply can, uh, can't explain its properties and its features through evolutionary mechanisms, uh, through uh, molecular evolution. Well, and, we can. Uh, well, I, we can't because I, I just have a stack of papers on my desk with people working within an evolutionary framework arguing that there's no way to account for the exquisite multidimensional optimization of the code through evolutionary mechanisms. Which code? The, the genetic code, the, the set of rules that, that relate information in, in proteins to, uh, or sorry, the information in DNA to the information in proteins. This, uh, it's been well established that this genetic code is, again, as multidimensional optimality. And people have argued that it can't be a frozen accident, which was Crick's explanation. It must have been shaped by the by evolutionary forces. It must be an adaptive code. The problem is, is that the mechanisms that people propose for how the code would evolve, uh, when you run simulations, you cannot generate a highly optimized code using those mechanisms. Well, let, let, let me, let's let's put this in, in language that people understand, right? So we we know that uh, if that it's driven by mutations, we have to explain that you know natural people will think that natural selection, sexual selection, that these are the primary. Uh, these are the primary mechanisms. They're not. Darwin didn't know what the primary mechanism was. He just knew what mechanisms would work on that primary mechanism. Primary mechanism being genetic drift. What is genetic drift? It is that uh, we have mutations happen constantly all the time, and they're usually very, very subtle. So subtle yeah. that most of them don't make any difference at all. Detrimental mutations tend to be eliminated relatively quickly. Beneficial mutations tend to have a selective advantage and otherwise most of them are neutral and not. And the only right. thing that they're gonna to lead to is differences. Right, and, and we're talking about two different things. I, I don't dispute anything that you're saying, Arne. What I'm talking about is when I say the genetic code, it's the set of rules that, again, are relating the information in DNA to the information in proteins. And so there, there's you know, these 64 codons that uh, where you have a, a degeneracy in the code, meaning that some codons uh, sorry, some amino acids are specified by multiple codons, and that degeneracy is is a highly specific type of degeneracy that is responsible for the optimization of the code, and and this is what people cannot account for. And why this is significant is because the genetic code is essentially the set of rules that are that set that define biochemistry itself. It's the set of rules at the heart of biochemistry that are that's relating again the information that you're talking about. In, in, in DNA that's undergoing you know, genetic drift or is being operated on by different types of selection uh, that then is instantiated in, in, in proteins that are carrying out the activities in the cell. 
it's it's that that set of rules that is giving meaning to the information in DNA that is essentially again exquisitely optimized that cannot be explained again through evolutionary means. And so this yeah. to me it, it is is a is a fundamental problem for the origin of life, a fundamental problem for molecular evolution that I think uh, leads you to only one conclusion when you see that level of exquisite optimization and an inability uh, to account for that through every conceivable evolutionary mechanism that has been proposed. Uh, you, I think you're left with one conclusion. There's got to be a mind that has structured that code. Okay, so, that so there can't be a mind by definition. Uh, the only thing that we have to indicate a God at all was that people made up gods being, you know, people with magic powers. Okay. And then wait, they had the Tom, idea. Huh? I, Tom, so I, I just want that. I, I gave probably five minutes to fuzz to kind of answer the question about irreducibly complex. I'd like to give the same time to you. And then I have to move on just because we have a bunch of questions. Okay. Well, we have I'm glad to we to. have questions. So yeah, there's lots of questions. So if you want to just give your thoughts on irreducibly complex yeah. uh, systems and what that might mean or how they come about or, or whatever, you might even agree a lot with Fuzz. Well, so. there, there, we actually we actually would do, and I'll, I'll start with that. He said that the way that it, that uh, irreducible complexity has been argued by intelligent design theorists uh, is is invalid, and he is correct. When they went to court in Kitzmiller versus Dover, they brought their best arguments, and every one of them was disproved. And the claim was that evolution could not explain these things, that there was that the reason they're called irreducibly complex was because the definition of irreducible complex is that you, that you can only have, you can only remove so many things or there's no evolutionary origin for that. There's no way that these can be derived. And so if there is a way that these mechanisms, and there was a, there was a handful that they listed, and I won't go into all that, but if there is a way that, that, that evolution can explain, or a potential explanation that evolution could provide for any of these systems, then they are no longer irreducibly complex by definition. Currently, there is, as far as I know, not one argument of irre irreducible complexity that, that has survived scrutiny, that hasn't been disproved, both already in science before it was disproved in a court of law. Great. Okay. That fantastic conversation, everybody. Um, we're going to jump into uh, the questions and uh, acknowledge our super chat folks. So we'll start right here from the top. I got a list. Uh, Crawdaddy029. Thank you for your super chat. Um, his super chat is just easy answer. No, get her done. All right. So you've got a fan <laughs> and Crawdaddy029. Uh, Stephen Steen, thank you for your super chat. It says, oh, Dr. Fuzz should know. But again, not a question. Appreciate your super chat. That's awesome. Uh, Maynard Saves, thank you for your super chat. Uh, for the good doctor, for Dr. Rana, uh, where does the genetic line from the Nephilim uh, start interacting with human genetics, biologically speaking? So again, this is... Yeah. Well, um, Genesis. yeah, yeah. I, um, I find that particular portion of, um, of Genesis, the, the reference to the Nephilim to be highly enigmatic and, and don't have, uh, a, an understanding of what's going on in that particular portion of scripture. Um, and, and so I just tend not to, to try to speculate or comment on what's going on with the Nephilim. So. I did read one description uh, one one Bible I had at one point that said that the Nephilim 
uh, according to the people who were composing the Bible that I was reading at that time, said that that likely referred to the high ones being nobility, and, and they said that these were people from Babylon who were mixing with Israelis. And, and that could very well be... Or, or Hebrews. They didn't say Israelis, but, you know, I, I think yeah. it was the Hebrews, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, Brian Stevens, thank you for your super chat. Uh, this is, again, just a statement. Honest answer of life or origin of life question uh, is that I don't know. That's what, that's what he says. So the honest origin of life answer is, I don't know. Yeah, and if you see my video that I made about abiogenesis, that's the first thing I said about it. And then I went on to, but this is what we do know. And <laughs> spent the next 10 minutes on that. Uh, okay, the next one, again, thank you for your super, uh, super chat. This is Stupid uh, Whore Energy. That's her uh, own name. That's what she okay. calls herself. <laughs> yep. I don't know. Nope, that's... That's fine. I just wanted to, there's a zero in there for the O. That's why I was just making sure that it wasn't. Um, this was for, uh, uh, for Dr. Rana. It says, how do you feel about the fact that um, embryonic synthesis of RNA is an ongoing project and the process is being made on several fronts and progress is being made on several fronts? An example, see uh, JAM Chem SOC 2010. Yeah. How yeah. do you feel about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying by any means that original life researchers are not actively pursuing explanations for, again, how the RNA world scenario would work. Uh, and so part of that scenario requires uh, the generation of RNA building blocks. And uh, that is considered to be a, a rather significant uh, hurdle that has to become, has to be overcome for again the, the RNA world is how do you get uh, the, you know the, the the ribose sugars how do you get the nucleobases and how do you get them to combine to form ribonucleotides and there's been some really nice work done um, I, I call it the Sutherland Sutherland reaction I don't know if that's the the appropriate that's the correct way. name yeah uh, which is a you know a remarkable um, accomplishment where these uh, this research team. And there's been other people that have followed up on this work since then, uh, actually intermingled the chemistry that people have proposed for the prebiotic synthesis of, of sugars. These are called the foremost reactions with the, some of the, the building block materials that would have been used in principle to make the nucleobases and found that you could have in effect like a five-step reaction sequence where you could go from simple molecules to um, ribonucleotides when you added phosphate into the into the reaction mix too. I, I wish I could cite the paper I read something about that weeks ago at yeah. most. Yeah, so uh, I think so, there was. Yeah, so you know, so to me, I th I think this is one of the most significant steps forward in prebiotic chemistry to be certain, and it, it 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 is one of those things that is blatantly obvious in retrospect. Why wouldn't anybody <laughs> over the course of sixty or seventy years actually try intermingling the two types of chemistries? So great, you know, great accomplishment. But I, I would say my critique of that work is the same as the critique of the RNA building blocks assembling into RNA polymers on clay surfaces. Because when you look at the details of those experiments, again, it's a highly, it's a highly contrived laboratory uh, pr protocol that, um, uh, uh, that simply would not be relevant to the conditions of the early earth. Off the top of my head, I can't give you the details. I actually wrote a couple of blog articles that are on our website where I go into the specifics of the reaction sequence and why 
you're looking at, again, uh, uh, mechanism, or not mechanisms, but procedures or protocols in the laboratory that are highly contrived, highly controlled, that would not translate to the conditions of the early Earth. And um, in fact, I uh, also discussed this in, in my book, Creating Life in the Lab. And so to me, what is done with the Southern, Re Southern reaction is, in, in principle, showing that the chemistry you need to make ribonucleotides does exist. That's an important uh, accomplishment. But where the failure is, if you want to call it failure, is that it do that chemistry doesn't translate to the conditions of the early Earth. And it doesn't have, in other words, geochemical relevance. That would be, that would be my, my criticism of it. And what is separating the two, the, the, what, the, the geochemical relevance from what's going on in the laboratory is essentially, again, intelligent agency. It's intelligent agency in the laboratory that is rigging the system in such a way that the chemistry is productive and efficient. Uh, and that, that kind of jimmy rigging would never happen on the early earth apart from intelligent agency. So that would, again, be my, my assessment of that work. But uh, again, I don't want to diminish the significance of that work or, or, or the respect that I have for the scientists that are doing that work. Um, and I, I, had a I have had a chance to hang out with origin of life researchers on numerous occasions and love, love hanging out with them. They're some of the most fun people in the world to hang out with, some of the most fun scientists to hang out with. They're very creative, very inventive. And in some respects, that actually is the problem, is that they're okay. so creative and so inventive that it's essentially, again, intelligent agency that is being infused into their experimental work. And the okay. first argument that I heard about, heard against them, was that they created the environment of a prebiotic earth. They removed all the oxygen, so everything's doing, everything's inside of airtight test tubes, and and so they have to simulate this or to simulate that, you know, these type of environments. And so they do. They get the temperatures right. They get the chemical mixes right, according to the first hypothesis. And then somebody comes up with an idea that, hey, maybe it's not like this. It's like this. So then they go from uh, Miller Urey's original experiment to the subsequent one, volcano in a bottle, which ultimately produce like 22 amino acids in that experiment. But the fact that it's involving test tubes, you know, and eliminating oxygen on purpose, well, that was, you know, that was people eliminating the oxygen. So you have to have, come on, people have, to, people have to follow whatever prompts they can. If they, if they don't suspect that there was, or they, they think, understand that there would be no oxygen in their atmosphere, then of course they're going to have to remove the oxygen in order to replicate. That doesn't mean that they're intelligent designers on their own. But yeah, Well, you know, and, and to build One off second. of your point. If we, I'll give you just a, like a really quick rejoinder. So sorry, Buzz. Just to try to get through as many questions as we sure. can. Yeah, yes. I probably have about 40 questions or so here. Okay. okay. Well, I'll, 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 I'll burn through what I can and, and we'll... So yeah, we'll I'll try to go fast. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, stupid whore energy says all research is um, all the researchers do is to set up the experiment experimental conditions to mirror the kinds of situations theorized uh, to have it made possible. You don't think that telescopes actually cause galaxies to appear? I, I think you kind of just covered a <laughs> yeah, lot yeah. of that information, yeah, well, well, so I don't well, think we need well, to go let, back let me through that again. Real, let me respond real quickly because. I'm sympathetic to the point, and this is also a point that Aaron made. And I'm not saying, of course, researchers have to set up the experimental apparatus to do the experiment. I'm not objecting to that. But what I'm saying is that they are inserting themselves into the experimental design unwittingly. So for example, in this synthesis of ribonucleotides, one of the steps requires 
irradiating the system with UV radiation. Okay, but if you irradiate the system with UV radiation at the other steps, it essentially will shut down the chemistry. It'll frustrate the chemistry. So you've got to irradiate it only at a single step. That creates this highly contrived artificial situation. Uh, and, and, and then you also have to ask the question, is the energy output of the UV radiation and the wavelength of the UV radiation typical of what you would have seen on the early Earth? And the answer is no. So this is an example of what I'm talking about is it's the intelligent agency that is making the decision to irradiate a particular step using a particular uh, UV source in order to affect the outcome that is unrealistic for any kind of scenario on the early Earth. Yeah, and I can't okay. speak to that because it's not the kind of research that I do. I mean, I'm right. I'm vaguely interested in abiogenesis, but I focus on evolution and I don't confuse it with chemical evolution or, or, or what have you. I mean, so I don't want to comment on other people's work beyond what, what I'm able to, to, to read. That's all I know. I've done a little bit more in evolution and taxonomy and so forth, so I'm going to stick with that. Yeah, okay. Um, again, uh, this, man, uh, Stupid Whore Energy, you were just rocking it tonight. Thank you so much for all these super chats. Uh, they ask again, um, does it give you pause that the central operating mechanisms of ribosomes is a ribosome which supports RNA world? Did I read uh, yeah. that correctly? Uh, does that give me pause? Um, yes, that's, that, that was that, the question. That, that, the, the ribosome is essentially a ribozyme. Yeah. Um, not necessarily. Um, no, that doesn't get that doesn't give me any any concern. That doesn't right. I mean, part of the argument for the RNA world. Um, again, I'm going to try to do this quickly. This is a complex. This is actually becomes a complex question. Part of the argument for the RNA world is that we see RNA molecules playing an intermediary role in 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 uh, cellular metabolism. So RNA is functioning as messenger RNA. You have transfer RNA and ribosomal RNAs. And so the argument is that these are leftover molecular fossils from uh, an RNA world that then produce later a DNA protein world. Uh, but actually there's an interesting paper published um, recently where uh, people are, are arguing that um, that you essentially have to have something like the molecular dogma as a universal requirement for life, that you have to have a flow of information from, from essentially an information storage system that can replicate to information uh, systems that can express that information. And that in order to go from uh, information in one format to another format, you have to have a decoding mechanism where RNAs are playing that, that fundamental role. And so there's a, actually a fundamental molecular logic, is my point, to why you have RNA intermediates in biochemistry that has, that. in other words, you don't have to think of them as being remnants of an RNA world. There's actually a fundamental reason why you have to have RNA intermediates. So anyway, and, and so the ribozyme that is the function, the ribosome that is a ribozyme would be one of those intermediates. Okay. Uh, I'm going to kind of combine these two together. Again, uh, Stupid Whore Energy um, sent two. One was correcting the other one. So I'm going to kind of link them both together. They said, uh, what do you think about the fact that genetic comparisons indicate that humans and chimpanzees share genetic similarity closer to, they originally said 85, they corrected it and said 95 to 99%. And yeah, that well, depends on how you measure it. And whether it's yep. whether it's ninety six percent or whether it's ninety nine, and it's uh, but again I'll I'll leave that question to him. 
Yeah, well, I mean, from my perspective, I, I would acknowledge that, that that kind of genetic comparison, and this is something Aaron was making reference to earlier, it is, does, uh, does present, I think, uh, compelling evidence for uh, common descent, no question about it. But again, I view biology from a, a design framework and justify that again, because I think the, because of the origin of life and the fundamental design of life, uh, to me, suggests the mind is behind it. And I would again go back to the work of Richard Owen, who conceived of, again, this archetype. And I would argue, could there be genetic archetypes? And if that's the case, then maybe what we're seeing is uh, genetic similarities isn't reflecting common descent, but actually common design. And um, um, I know I ha can imagine the type of re rejoinder Arnold's going to make to that argument. Yeah, we have, we have all kinds of proof of, of, of genetic, yeah, of, of common descent and no, literally no possibility of common design. Now, it's not just that we don't have evidence of common design, because we don't. We don't have a possibility of it either. But yeah. that that opens up two other completely different conversations than one that I was asked to have right, tonight. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, Steven Steen, <laughs> thank you for your super chat, says, I don't know what most of these words mean. I can relate with some of that. I was trying to keep up as best I could. Um, I, I am a uh, biologist from afar, if you will, really far. Um, uh, Sifrindo uh, Siberia. Sifrindo uh, Saravia. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for the help with the name there. Um, Aaron, this is for you. It says, the first salamander comes out of the water. What does it reproduce with being the first and how... Uh, how does chance account for every species had that scenario? Yeah, this is this is, a lot of people would call this a stupid question, but it's an important question because it's a common misperception. Humans derived our many different breeds of dogs using evolutionary mechanisms. We used artificial selection, which often often has opposite results from natural selection, because natural selection is is looking to benefit the organism, wherein we breed things to benefit us, not the organism which is why everything comes up so messed up as it does. But when we bred the first dachshund, did we only breed a male dachshund? Did, it, did the first dachshund not have female? Obviously what happened was a population genetics. We know that Spanish, French, and Italian have all been derived from Latin, in a sense analogous to evolution. Now, was there a first guy to speak French walking around a bunch of Italian people and he has to go find somebody to speak French to? Obviously that didn't work, right? So it's population level changes, not individual changes. So there wasn't a first salamander. There, like there was not a first guy to speak French. There was never a first guy to speak French. Think about that. Who could the first guy to speak French was? How do we identify even specifically what French is? If you, if you read certain documents, uh, you know, going back 1500 years or so, you might be able to find things that are not quite Latin, not quite Spanish, but on the way to being there, right? There are some old books that are like that. That's the way that evolution is, population level changes. Now, Spanish, French, and uh, Romanian began as cladogenesis, wherein you still have you still have Latin, the original language, and then people moved to different areas, the originally speaking Latin, and then in this area, it, it changes a little bit to become Spanish, this area changes a little bit to become French, population one. <laughs> Right. And now with the change from Latin to Italian, 
was different because this is where Italian replaced Latin. And you didn't, again, you didn't have a first guy speaking Latin against a bunch of old people who were first guy speaking Italian with a bunch of old people who only speak Latin and they can't understand each other. That's not the way it works. Subtle changes over time until now we recognize Italian has replaced Latin, you know, and, and in another thousand or 2000 years from now, different languages will have emerged. Some of those languages will be extinct, but not necessarily all of them, but it's population level changes. Appreciate that. Um, I think this must have been some sort of reaction to an internal or online conversation that was happening in the chat. So Thermo15, thank you for your super chat. It reads, Larry is terrified of debating Nephilim free even when Larry is falling down drunk. So must have the wrong super or the, uh, the wrong debate or discussion. Oh, Forgive no, me. no, no. They're, they're talking about me because Kent Hovind didn't know what the, the L in my original name stood for. So he guessed incorrectly, as he always does, and decided to call me Larry just to show his disrespect because he couldn't call me by my real name and he doesn't have a valid argument. So Kent Hovind's argument was so bad that all he could do was to try to find dirt on me and not being able to find dirt. He made up another name so he could call me names because he's basically a 65-year-old, six-year-old. That's his problem. And as far as being afraid to debate Nephilim free, I went to this conference in Colorado, I think it was, and I hadn't eaten anything all day. They took me to a brewery just before they go to this thing and they get me all this stuff, like seven beers and like you know 12% ABV. And then they put me on, on camera right away. So yeah, I was a little trashed, but you can't say that I was afraid of debating Nephilim free when the reason that they canceled it was because I was so overzealous to do it. I mean, I'm coming on it. Come on, Nephilim. Come on, bring it. Okay. Right? That doesn't okay. sound like I'm afraid, does it? Nope. It's, okay. That, so there, thank you for that backstory. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> we are, by the way, so so sorry. We're looking, I want to remind everybody, there was one I saw earlier, and I this is one that slipped by me, and I, that and I didn't know who Larry was referring to. Um, so sorry about that, Aaron. We ask everybody, whether it be for Aaron or for Dr. Uh, or for Fuzzrana, if you could do us a favor, we don't want abusive super chats. I mean, the guests are here volunteering their time. So I just want to say, like, for, I, I personally feel indebted to them. And so we're thankful to have them here. Please keep it respectful. I will jump to the next super chat. And hopefully my audio is doing okay. Let me know. Note, we have notified the Pentagon. Thanks for your super chat. I think this is... Uh, they just say Zohar Stargate is real. I don't know <laughs> right. if I wish I, is this like the new pool slang? I don't know. So unless that's some sort of biology term, I just <laughs> just learned. I'll go to the next one. Stupid horn energy. Thanks for your super chat. Uh, and then I'll switch it back over to, uh, to Tim. Thanks for your help, Tim. And she asked, what do you think of the fact that Kimberella is generally interpreted to represent a La, Lapota, Lapoto, Lapozoan? Lapotra Kozoan stem group. Hopefully, you guys are tracking with what I'm saying. I, I don't know if the pH is an La, F. Lapoika Kozoan. Thank you. Uh, they say, which yeah. means that animals were diversifying well before the start of the Cambrian. Yes, they they uh, they obviously were. We have, as I said, when you have this the diversification of body plants, and there's absolutely no comprehension in advance what will work and what won't then life forms developed in every possible different configuration they could. And those that made it, made it. And then a lot of other ones that didn't through population mechanics, they will survive for a while, but eventually they will be outcompeted by other things. The fossil record is full of things like this. 
we have all over the place, we have life forms that were adequate until something better came along and then they couldn't compete anymore. It's, it's like that. So, I mean, again, definite indications of incidental design and failed experimentation, blind guesswork throughout the fossil record and through genetics. Uh, Maynard saves. This is a question for um, for Fuzz. It says, "Who are the octopuses' genetic descendants, biologically speaking?" And I stand with no Nakasuchi. I don't know. What... So Nakasuchi is a regular. He's been here debating for whatever it is. We hope you're doing okay, Nakasuchi. I don't know what's going on. Hopefully he's okay. But uh, the question on the ancestors. Do you say fair to say the biological ancestors of Octopus for, for fuzz? Yes. Okay. Well, I, you know, um, I mean, you know, the, the octopus is uh, is um, uh, good grief. Um, <laughs> having one of these senior moments here. Um, I'd, I'd like to step in if I could. I just yeah, yeah please. Yeah, I was going to say, Aaron, you're I the just, I just read a study uh, days ago that was talking about how how. Uh, octopods being well, not just octopus, but also squid are the weirdest things on the planet as far as genetics go. They actually, according to this study, they modify their own RNA, which just doesn't correlate to anything. I've, I've, I've seen other studies where they tried to, to cast, you know, they send sensationalized the story to try to cast a, a squids and octopus as if they were alien. But this actually is a lot more uh, alien sounding when they can modify their own, in their own RNA in a way that no other organism has been seen to do. Yeah. And, and, you know, for, for me, I, I've, um, I am familiar with the fact that the, that squid and, and octopi have very bizarre genetics. Uh, but I would be reticent, frankly, to, to, to use that argument one way or the other, uh, to, to try to make a case for intelligent design or to challenge an evolutionary framework. I, I, to me, I don't think it's worthwhile pointing out things that are highly bizarre and anomalous as, uh, as, as relevant to the conversation. What I would want to do is look at things that I think are, are well-established and, and well-understood uh, and use that as the basis to make a case for my position, um, not uh, argue from, from things that are highly anomalous. Can we get you guys to just scan through the questions to find if there are questions? And, yes. Yes. And, and, and whether they're relevant. Yeah. yeah we, I mean, there are Citra, a few good ones. Citrifredo, Sarabia, and these are sometimes, forgive me, I think Citrifredo might be one of our guests from outside of the States, maybe, but uh, he, we're glad to have you. He says, so in other words, if it's difficult to understand, uh, it might also be me, forgive me, he says, correct me if, if I'm wrong, wasn't everyone first taught evolution was, quote, change of species over time, when did it take microevolution definition accounting macro? I think they mean like... Okay, to, to clarify again, this is the same process. Uh, genetic drift happens continuously, so that you have in one population... It, the slightest division, whether it's a, a change in habits or a change in, in uh, location, whether genetically isolated, whatever, these, these buildup of changes in each population group 
will have uh, unique mutations occur in one group that don't occur in the other half of that population, if you will, so that it won't be many generations before a single mutation that occurred in a single individual is spread throughout the entire community and it'd be a collection of mutations that would be spread through different individuals in that community to where you would be able to recognize from you took one population, you put them into two different environments, and now you see, and if you found one that escaped from either of them, you would know which one it escaped from because it would bear those traits. You'd be able to identify what it is. Now it's still genetically interfertile. There are different uh, definitions of species for whether it's a plant or an animal, whether it's sexually or asexually reproductive, but for sexually reproductive animals, speciation is given to be when the organism either can't reproduce with viable offspring or under normal circumstances, it would not. Like you can get a, uh, a hybrid out of lions and tigers, but usually lions will not get with tigers under normal circumstances. So this is where they, they draw the line for species. The, you get to a point in the subspecies level where each member of this population has the same traits. They have traits that no other me no member in the other population has. So they're diagnostic features not shared by the other group. And then when you have a genetic isolation, you have the only significant change in the entire hierarchy of, of taxonomy. Is it interfertile with the other group? No, it's not. Okay, there's the division. And what usually happens in a population is that the, the dominant gene pool will actually restrict novel uh, mutations from having much influence over the population for getting very far. But in isolated populations, the smaller groups, then these mutations have a better chance. So we, usually what happens is evolution is faster in smaller divided groups. Fantastic. Yeah, yep. I thought Arne's explanation was, was really good. And, and just to be clear, uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, I, I agree that, that those mechanisms are indeed in operation in, in biology that I have no problem with, again, variation happening within a species with, with the, the prospect of speciation or even uh, evolution happening at uh, the level of genus or family. I just, uh, again, am skeptical that that mechanism can can fully account for the totality of biology. Um, and I think you, there are places where you need intelligent agency to input into well, just, the system. Just to, just to counter that, if I may. And I'm, I'm sorry, I thought you were done with the sentence before I started talking. No, 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 no problem. Right. You're good. You're good. All right. Thank, thank you. you um, I did do a series, did, did an individual video called false, called, uh, uh, the phylogeny challenge, and if anybody shares this position that there there could be created kinds, or that or that evolution is limited only to up to a certain point, please watch the phylogeny challenge and see if you can answer that challenge. I subsequently also did a video series, and I'm working on I think episode 43 right now will be out this month for the systematic classification of life. People often ask me for you know, to explain the transitions from molecules to man. And that's like something on the order of like 73 or 74 named clades, not to mention the unnamed clades. And I try to cover as many of those as I can in the 43 episodes that I've done. Fantastic. Um, uh, thank you for that. Uh, Stupid Whore Energy, thank you for your super chat. This one is for Aaron. But let's not see the same hands all the time. I'm, I'm just going in order here. We, we'll, we'll try to, there's a lot more questions. We'll try to wrap it up shortly. We'll be going for quite a while. We appreciate your time and everyone tuning in. Uh, this one says, do you think tornadoes are irreducibly complex systems that evolved naturally for Aaron? They didn't evolve. They're not alive. Great. Gotcha. One extra. Uh, before, so from this list, this is a huge list. Thank you so much, everybody, for your questions. 
We Patreon priority question for Brian Stevens. Basically, he's a patron. We really appreciate it. And so we push those to the top of the list for the standard questions. Brian Stevens asked for for fuzz. He says, if God is all powerful and could have made humans any possible way, how is creationism falsifiable? Um, how is creationism falsifiable? Um, yeah, that, I mean that's that's a, a good question. Um, yeah, yeah, I think you know, um, it, it reasons to believe we propose something that we call a creation model approach to the um, to the the origin of the universe and the origin of life, and we actually propose. Uh, based on what we think the creation accounts in scripture are teaching, uh, ways to, to evaluate or te to test our idea. So with regard to the origin of humanity, um, if you look at what the creation accounts teach, I think if you, uh, uh, from those creation accounts, I think a, 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 a traditional reading would say that humanity began as uh, um, a single man and a single woman that were the sole progenitors of all humanity. And so that's a testable prediction. Uh, and it's been falsified by, um, by an evangelical Christian, no less. Well, I, I, I question if it has been falsified. but well, that Francis Collins, director of the Human Genome Project, said it's not possible that humanity was ever in a population of only a few thousand people. Yeah, and the, the, when you look into the details of how those numbers are arrived at, I'm of the conviction that those methods that are used to estimate population sizes are are flawed methods and well, you want to talk about flawed you're talking about scripture nothing but flaw well, you ever, okay. you ever wonder why it is that the bible okay. is absolutely but, but wrong I, but absolutely I'm, trying to, I'm trying to address the question uh, how, is it, how is it falsifiable Sorry. right and and i i we're, we're talking about one example where you, in principle you could falsify it another would be this idea that human beings bear god's image and i think you could uh, equate the image of god to the concept scientifically of human exceptionalism and you can make the case, argument are human beings exceptional or not do we differ in kind or degree from other creatures so that's another place where you could you could um, you could probe uh, for the, the the question of human origins in a way that you could falsify or verify the scriptural accounts okay yeah there's there's an awful lot more ways to falsify the scriptural accounts if that's if that's your source at all yeah, we could go a long time on that. Yeah, we, we, we know there's a lot of conversation points from both sides on that uh, question. But just to try to fly through as many as we can, we want to. So sorry, we're already going every over everybody's time. But if we could just try to squeeze a few more in, in sure. terms of questions, we, we appreciate everybody's questions. And especially you guys donating a super chat. Cold loyalty. Thanks for your question. New person. Uh, glad to have you here. They said, how do you jump from complexity, quote unquote, to quote unquote design without using a fallacious argument. And P.S., good job, Aaron. You've got a fan out there, Aaron. So I think Thank this you. would be for, uh, for Fuzz. Fuzz. Namely, how do you jump yeah. to complexity design? Yeah, first of all, I never made the point that I think complexity is an argument for design. Um, I never, I don't hold that position, and I would be sympathetic to the questioner's complaint uh, because I don't think complexity is an argument for design. Uh, the, the approach that I take is essentially to, to construct what I would call an intelligent design pattern. That is, there are certain, uh, and this is William Paley's point, when you look at systems that human beings have produced, 
there's certain telltale properties that reflect the work of a mind. He used the concept of a contrivance. Uh, when you look at SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the concept that they use there is artificiality, which is roughly equivalent to Paley's concept. And, and so I would argue that, again, there's certain properties that, that human designs display, and you could collect those properties and develop what I call an, an intelligent design pattern. And then you can just simply do pattern matching where you compare the features, and in this case, of biochemical systems with the features of human designs and argue, is there a similarity? How, what is the extent or the degree of that similarity? And so my argument is that, that biochemical systems look like they're designed because they have, again, the properties of systems that we know are designed. And, and so it's not an argument from complexity at all, but, but an argument from the, the, again, what we would expect systems that are designed to look like and, and biochemical systems look that way. Yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like to agree with what he just said about the complexity is not an indicator for a design. Very often efficient simplicity would be an indicator for a design rather than the complexity we see certainly in biology. But one of the two problems with Paley's argument was that one, he, 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 uh, he isolates the watch apart from everything else so that everything other than the watch is it doesn't require a god only the watch requires this this mind that he's talking about and then the other problem with that is that the only reason that it requires a mind is because it's not self-replicating like life is well and and, and we're, we're gonna yeah i'd like to be able to respond to that but i know yeah. we're trying to do questions yeah. so i um go ahead jim just uh i appreciate you guys being so uh willing to maybe if we have another chance to get to have both of you on it'd be a, a thrill yeah, I want to thank you for having a guest like this, by the way, because I very rarely get to talk to people who just don't come right out of the gate lying about me or, or, or trying to start a fight. So that's that's brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I, I've, I've, I've actually enjoyed this time. And I think if if I've learned anything is that I, I'd love to be able to engage you further, Arne, and um, uh, would love to be able to come back on this program and do that. But I think what we need to do is probably be highly specific about what we're going to engage so that you and I can really get into the, 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 the nitty gritty if you're so inclined to do that in the future. Agreed. Great. Be rad. I, I have to say, you guys, I don't know if I've ever seen such positive feedback. The live chat people have just been brimming for both of you. They've just been loving it. So uh, we'll try to fly through a few more just because i know that forgive me tim uh, just to try to squeeze these last ones in i think tim what time zone are you on eastern standard i'm eastern so it's 11 23 for me but, but you're a young guy you should you should be able to stay up late yeah, I've, I've got hours of homework to do after this uh, yeah <laughs> we'll try to, i think a lot of these are probably you guys will think they're like quick and easy so see darwin thanks for your question and your super chat um yes yeah, dr uh fuzrana rn rom Agrees, agrees with Dr. Hoven? What? Agrees with Dr. Hoven's view of evolution. Do you too? I'm not sure what they mean by that. Uh, they, they, they are being uh, deliberately deceptive. I don't think anybody through any act of stupidity could possibly draw the conclusion that I agree with Hoven's distortion of evolution. I, I'm just about yeah. anything, yeah. yeah, you, yeah. You've been trolled. I, mean, I was going to say, I was like, I have a feeling this is a troll. So just, you know, <laughs> let's see. We'll try to apply through some... Uh, and these questions I sent to you, Tim, over, so if we want to switch off reading them, maybe like six more, some of them are quick. For example, Mothra J. Disco says, 
Arden is a sexy, thick boy who knows science. That's very sweet. Uh, well, there you go. <laughs> so he thinks you're a sexy man who knows science. And also, Sigifredo Sarabia, thanks for your question. He says, Arden, do you, uh, how do you accept man was created if some theories in evolution don't work? Even more so if you believe Adam and Eve were real and play. Was it aliens? Come on, Zizifredo, are you trolling us? Okay, yes. we're skipping that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, we're we're going to move to the next one. I'm sorry, Zizifredo, I'm sorry. Stupid Horror Energy said, Ants have developed a hierarchical code from patterns on their faces. Is this, is this a code that evolved naturally? Well, if other, the, the only option is supernaturally, i.e. magically. Uh, so yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I don't believe in anything supernatural. Supernatural equals magical, equals miraculous. They're the same concept. There, until there's until, until there's evidence of it, then it's that it isn't real. Well, you know, from my perspective, I don't know anything about the the, the code on ants' faces. So, I'm you know I don't know how to to respond to that specifically. But I will say this. Um, Part of my argument is that uh, from our experience, we know that codes and information and codes emanate from minds. That's our common experience. And so when I see, again, information, when I see codes in nature, to me, that's suggestive that there's a mind involved in generating those codes, generating that information. Um, and, and, you know, I'm most familiar with the, the information and the coding systems that are found in biochemistry. And what's remarkable is the similarity of those systems with the types of uh, systems that we would produce in language or produce in, um, in computer type systems or information type systems. So to me, it's not just simply the presence of information, but it's also the structure of that information and, and its eerie similarity to human information systems that to me suggests the mind is undergirding everything. And again, it's driven entirely by mutations, which are just mistakes, which again, you don't ever get to see the product of that until you get to see it, the further emergent property when it gets out into the population. And then when those populations are subjected to different uh, selective pressures over multiple extinction level events to finally get to us. So I mean, the other argument for God, you know, are we in, in God's image? Well, I have to wonder why God is an ape. Gotcha. We uh, subtracted. Well, I, I subtracted, I think he just, I think Fuzz just answered your question there. So your question was about how do we demonstrate design? We have examples of cars being designed, but no examples of life being made. And, uh, and you know, Fuzz, you just pointed out the analogous systems between, um, you know, right. codes developed and stuff. Yeah, and no, no, because so DNA, can... because DNA does actually produce proteins and different proteins in different, in different sequences, to put this the simplest possible way that I can, then there's there there is actually a product from the different configurations, and for that reason, I have to concede that that would qualify under one under a broad definition of what a code is, but clearly does not come from a mind and cannot come from a mind. Well, okay. I don't think that, I don't think we can say conclusively that it doesn't come from a mind. I don't think. Well, we, how how does a mind do anything, right? Especially you're talking about a disembodied mind. That's a whole so other debate. What do we have? Yeah, do we have telekinesis? <laughs> the mind, the mind itself, is an emergent property of the brain. So sorry. Uh, again, guys. that's a, that assumes a bottom up. But what, again, I'm not the expert. Uh, 
I think we got that. one more, Jim. You want to go uh, one more about the sea lions? Yeah, we got a couple from a uh, fellow. That's right. Subtracted on sea lions. Thanks for your question. Uh, and sorry to stop you guys. I I love that you guys are you guys love this and are passionate. But I promise we'd be honored to have you on again. Is subtracted says Fuzz, can you please explain the sea lions having remnant bones for walking? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the idea of vestigial structures that I, I think for many people uh, reflects a, a, a you know prima facie case for common descent. And um, I don't specifically know um, uh, the the details of, of sea lion anatomy, but I know that you see a, a corresponding structures in whales, as an example. And um, the assumption is that these vestigial structures lack function and therefore lack any kind of meaning other than there being, again, the remnants of an evolutionary history. But there's been recent work showing that these structures in, in whales actually are performing uh, some critical um, uh, biological functions and therefore not useless structures. And this is where, again, the, the ideas of Richard Owen become helpful because in the, the, the archetype framework, uh, for Owen, what was the most important thing was form as opposed to function. And Owen marveled that you could actually take uh, a form and it'd be robust enough that varying that form could lead to a wide range of, of functionality and, and thought of that as being the highest order of design. And in Owen's scheme, he was very well much aware of what we would call vestigial structures today, but argued that it made perfect sense for those systems to be there because for them not to be there, it would violate the archetype and therefore argued that, it, again, it made sense for those systems to be there. So I, in a sense, there's a two-pronged answer. One is it's part of the archetype and therefore it makes sense that it would be present. But secondly, you're making the assumption that it's not functional. And if it is functional, then I, I think from a creation model standpoint, uh, the, the presence of those kind of structures makes perfect sense. Well, that, that's no, that a vestige doesn't mean useless. A vestige, a vestigial means that it is a vestige. So we have sea lions as opposed to seals who still have the same bones as seals do, but at they, their legs still function as legs to the capacity that they can at least stand up. Now, they can't walk efficiently, but they can stand up using those same bones. And then when you go back into the fossil record, we have a number, not just one, but a few transitional proto-seal types that do have the ability to walk around on land as actual walking things, but that their flippers are now are already so big that they were ungainly. So they wouldn't have spent a lot of time on the land, even though they still had the ability to stand on that. We get the same thing with, with, uh, with serenians. We have manatees that have Full, full four legs, not just two flippers, but all four legs, and the, the vestigial limb, the elbow in a manatee. Why does, it, why does a manatee have an elbow? It doesn't need one. Uh, why does it still have the remnants of its hooves, our fingernails, in its flipper? If you look at a manatee's flipper, you find fingernails. With whales, there may be an alter or a secondary purpose that the hip bone could serve in reproduction whales, but that's not the primary purpose that it originally had, which joined the legs for the fossil whales that still had back legs. So that's what vestigial means. Doesn't mean that it's worthless. Our, our canines are vestigial. Doesn't mean they're worthless. They're just not very impressive canines anymore. Thank you, gentlemen. And forgive me, Fuzz, I'm so sorry. I know that you, I'm more than confident you have something in response, but I just because Tim is, 
Someone asked, they said, is Tim, is Tim a moderator? Is he falling asleep or is he high? And so I just, uh, to let Tim get to sleep, I, I, I just, forgive me, I, I know that we, we could go on longer. We, like I said, we'd be thrilled to have you as this is, I can't, I'm not, I'm not making this up, folks. I'm not exaggerating. I honestly feel like, wow, this was just, I feel like this will go down in the record books, the history books for modern day debate. This has honestly been so fun, you guys. I, I have to applaud, I mean, if I could give you a standing ovation, I would to our speakers. Thank you so much. This has been just amazing. And, yeah. I, I want to I want to chime in on that too. I know I shouldn't be talking anymore, but I do. I do. Was it, is it Fuzz? Is it MPC? yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Fuzz. Yeah. Uh, nice meeting you. And very usually, when I argue with creationists, they're the young Earth type usually, and they are always overtly dishonest very disingenuous people. And I don't get that vibe from you. And I appreciate that very much. Well, and, and, uh, I enjoyed, uh, getting to know you, your reputation precedes you. And, uh, <laughs> and that's a good, and I mean that in the best possible way, but I, I enjoyed interacting with you and love to do it again in the future. You, you seem to be, to be somebody I could have a good time just hanging out with, <laughs> uh, well, over a beer, much. over a beer. So, and, uh, and I, and I think we probably have a lot more in common than we do in terms of our points of disagreement, though they are significant. So anyway, I appreciate you, uh, you, you taking the time to engage. It's been superb. Also, thank you, Tim, for staying up late with us on the East Coast over there. We appreciate your help. You've been a huge blessing. Thanks so much for all you've done tonight. And uh, yeah, just want to say, folks, thanks for your questions. Just thanks for being here. I, this really is I I really do believe like modern day debate is like an abstract entity. I really want you to know that it's like I I fire a few emails out for folks like the audience. This is your channel. It's the debaters channel. They're the lifeblood of the channel. We can't thank them enough. They make this possible so that we all get to just hear these ideas. And so I uh like I said, I could never have dreamed this would go as amazing as it has. So thanks everybody. This has been absolutely superb. I already had great expectations and passed them. By far, it's been just so. With that, keep everything out reasonable from the unreasonable. One last reminder: both Fuzz and Aaron and Tim, all of their links are in the description, so that you can check out more by clicking on those links that are conveniently located below. So, have a great night, everybody. Take care. Saving money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth, so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape. Or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today. And view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save